0: Man, it is so good to see you. I wanna welcome you in this second weekend of a brand new year. And as you watch the video, you can tell we're in a brand new series in the book of First Peter. I'm so excited to dive into that with you today. Would you find that book in your Bibles towards the very back, First Peter, and we'll be in chapter one. You can kinda of get your yourself set up, get your notes good to go, we'll dive in. Well, I just wanna welcome you guys here in Powell Auditorium. For those of you that are joining us in Asperia and Apple Valley today, really glad that you're with us and making this a part of your weekend, as well as those who are watching online this morning, a welcome to you as well. Last weekend was just such an encouraging weekend for our directional team. Initiatives that we had been working on since last April, we were able to share with you, but what was really encouraging wasn't just the sharing, but it was seeing your response when we see how many people have already registered for the HDCU classes that begin next weekend, as well as those who've shown interest in our residency program called HDC Next, as well as in our Oikos training, HDC Change. is just so encouraging. So thank you for the comments throughout the week. Thank you for your actionable step of signing up and registering or getting on an interest list. And we're excited about where God is leading us in this brand new year. In that reality, we are also in this brand new year. 2024 has a lot of things going on. Some of you are all excited about the Olympics. You're figuring out, how can I get to Paris? Yeah, it ain't gonna happen, but good thing NBC will cover it for you. So that's a big deal this year. And then obviously we're in another election year. And as we shared a little bit last week, my greatest aim in this year is not to be surprised to the degree of just reacting to everything, like I know many of you, and for sure I felt like I was doing in 2020. So instead, I wanna get a better foundation. I wanna get a better basis, so then I'll know and we'll know how to react to the challenges and even the very possible divisions that we're gonna face, not just in our country, but sadly enough, in our churches. And so that's why this book now, And I I love that about scripture. There are books in God's word that speak to us in very timely ways and timely seasons. Times when we are going through grief and there are books that we look to to bring encouragement and hope. Other times when we are just elated and wanna continue to thank and praise God, there are books we go to that give us words for the things that we're feeling but don't even know how to say. And there are books we go to that bring conviction because we've wandered and we've strayed from God's design. Those are all things. First Peter is very timely related to the fact of how do we react when there is a culture that is growingly moving away from God's design in all areas of their lives and even are turning a corner to say, and for those of you who follow Jesus, who keep reminding us of these things, we're irritated by that. We're even uh, suspicious of who you are. How do you respond in a Jesus kind of way to those kinds of realities? That's why this book is so important. Peter's readers were going through things even more significant than we most likely will face this year and we have so much to learn from them. And what he wanted to begin with is to help them understand from the beginning who they are and the fact that they're exiles, that they don't belong here on this planet, that their citizenship and their inheritance is in heaven. That's where they're connected to and that's where their loyalty, that's where their loyalty belongs the most. And so those same words 2,000 years later are so important and so relevant for us today that we wanted to dive in and we wanted to see, God, how can we be a people who don't lose hope when things get really challenging? How can we be a people who continue to be reminded of where our home really is, where our citizenship lies, and who deserves our loyalty the most? These are important things, and we wanna get rooted and grounded into them. So we just began with a glimpse last week of 1 Peter. Today we dive into chapter one, and you're gonna love the beginning. It, it just erupts with praise of God's goodness. Just a couple of reminders we shared last week about the book. It's human author, though inspired, God breathed It is was, was Peter. Peter, the guy who goes by Simon and Cephas as well throughout the gospels and the book of Acts. And this guy, what we appreciated about him last week is he lived high highs of faith and obedience, and other times he lived low lows of faithlessness and disobedience. And we recognize we have some relatability with him, that though there may be seasons when we are walking according to how God would have us to, we know there are others where we are walking our own way. And so we can be just encouraged by what Peter, who Peter was, and the fact that he's the human author of this book. We, we get it a little bit. We also were told last week who he was writing to, specifically a group of Christians in what is modern day Turkey. Take a look at the map. This is where that area of the world is. You'll see the big circle around it. Many of those regions are specifically noted in the first verses of First Peter. And so Peter wants them to know that and what he's wanting them to know right out of the gate is he called them elect exiles. Elect in the sense that God chose them, God included them, brought them into his family and yet that means that their citizenship isn't here, it's of somewhere else. And so how to live in this tension of what Peter heard Jesus pray for in John 17, that they would be a people who are in, but not of the world. And that reality of living in that tension seems to be a day-by-day challenge and struggle. And Paul wanted them to know their identity, whose they are. And we started out with some of those realities just to kind of get our, our gears working so we could dive in today really headlong and really get into it. And what we're gonna see today is this, Peter is gonna paint this vivid, powerful picture of the reality of our citizenship in heaven while he's going to have empathy for the fact that they are suffering because they're walking Jesus's way. And this is gonna be an ongoing reminder and encouragement throughout the book of 1 Peter, It's going to be worth it. All right? Let's dial in number 1 in your notes today. When your faith is in Jesus, his resurrection gives you hope and an eternal inheritance. When your faith is in Jesus, his resurrection gives you hope and an eternal in- inheritance. We pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, this is powerful. Peter, right out of the gate, there's a third verse in his letter to these folks. He wants them to know, man, we're giving God all the credit. Look at this amazing thing he's done. And he's quick to dial into, not just the fact that we have a hope, but we have a living hope. On all of our campuses this weekend, we're singing that song, reminding ourselves of the fact that because Jesus is alive, because he died and rose again three days later, conquering all things related to sin and death, it's because of that that our hope is living, that we can hold on to this reality because it's deeply, completely connected to the person of Christ. And therefore it's unique from any other kind of thing. Let's first remind ourselves a little bit by by defining the terms. When we use the word hope in our common vernacular, it just means optimistic thinking. Like some of you were hoping it wouldn't be that cold at the beginning of this new year here in the high desert. And to those of you I would say, number one, welcome to the desert, you haven't lived here very long. And number two, I would say, well, it's good to have optimistic well-wishing, but none of that happened. It's been crazy cold, because that's how it is in the high desert in January. So that kind of hope, this optimistic thinking, is not a biblical hope. There's nothing wrong with that, but when the Bible uses the concept of hope, it's talking about this incredible confidence that we have because what we're hoping for and who we're hoping in is rooted in the rock-solid promises of God. So we don't hope Jesus resurrected from the dead. We have the truth in God's word that says he did. And therefore, that's the foundation of our hope is in this living person, in this living savior that we are so grateful for. Look in your notes. Do not lose sight that our hope is tethered to Jesus, tethered to Jesus who conquered the enemy that we fear most, death itself. Don't lose sight that he is. It's not somewhere around him or near him. It is in him that we have a living hope. So be encouraged that Jesus accomplished what you needed most. Be encouraged that Jesus defeated who you feared most. And it's in him, rightly so, that we direct our attention, we direct our energy, we direct our confidence. It's an interesting thing. It's probably part of your story in coming to Christ. Is that there were things in your life that you had attached hope to? You had attached hope to a person, the fact that they weren't going to let you down. You'd attached hope to a career. You'd attached hope to wealth. You'd attached hope to a future that you had for yourself. And yet along the way in coming to place your faith in Christ, those things prove themselves hopeless. They failed you. And they failed you because they simply were on a fallen world and they were bound to fail you. It wasn't unique to you, it's happened to every single human being. Anytime we put our hope in anything less than a God who exists outside of us, who is completely powerful and perfect, Everything else is rightly gonna let us down. And you actually look back on that with a fondness because you realize it was because you let go of those things, you stopped hoping in them to fulfill and satisfy the place that God left in you for himself so you could finally, with arms wide open, embrace the great news of the gospel. Can I say that very thing is happening in people's lives that you do life with, in your relational world, in your oikos people that have not yet become convinced that jesus is the way the truth and the life their hope in other things lesser things is beginning to shatter they're beginning to realize like you did that can't do for me what i had hoped it would that person won't be faithful to me like i had hoped they would And as a result, they're searching. As a result, they're unhinged. As a result, and I love this phrase, they're coming to the end of themselves. Can I tell you that's good news? Because it's in that space that we're most apt to finally go, God, I surrender. I am looking for someone, something that will last, that is worthy of attaching my hope to. And when the people in your relational world are coming to that place, can I just remind you, like we shared last week, put their name on an Oikos card, put their name in a place in front of you where you are consistently praying, and praying that prayer. God, would you bring them to the end of themselves so they would recognize such a better life that awaits, a life that is rescued, a life that is redeemed, a life that is saved. And as you have those conversations with them, would you recognize if you've been a part of HTC for any time, you know that whoever is on this stage most every weekend finishes with this opportunity to respond to the gospel in this tool of just the ABCs to admit, to believe, and to choose. Can I tell you something revolutionary? That tool doesn't just exist, it's not owned or possessed by just people on this stage. You could share that with someone. You could share that they need to admit that they're a sinner who needs a savior. You could share with them that they're called to believe in a Jesus who is the only savior available and that they can choose to surrender their life at his feet and follow his example. That tool's available for us all, not just to respond to, but to share with other people who need it. And I wanna encourage you in this season and the season we're moving into, don't hoard Jesus. Let's be quick to give Him away. Because there is a world, your world, who is searching for Him and we have this incredible opportunity to share what they're looking for. In this passage, we're looking at commentator Warren Wiersbe gave some powerful insights related to the hope that we're talking about. Look at what he said. This confident hope gives us the encouragement and the enablement we need for daily living. It does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. That's such a great line. It doesn't lull us into apathy. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace on the battlefield where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It's a shot of adrenaline, a blood transfusion. Like an anchor, our hope in Christ stabilizes us in the storms of life, but unlike an anchor, our hope moves us forward, it does not hold us back. Those are great lines, great truth of this living hope we have in Jesus. And and it keeps coming back to, and where is our new citizenship? This inheritance that awaits for us in heaven. Now we said a minute ago how important it is to define the terms. What does the Bible mean when it uses the word hope? Additionally, what does the Bible mean when it uses the word heaven? Guaranteed in all of our spaces today, physically and online, there are so many varied ideas of what you think of which many of them have been informed by a culture. They're not consistent with God's word. It is not the place that every good moral person goes to. It is not the place where you get to go and somehow just do what you want for all of eternity. Like this is just gonna be rad. Sorry, I grew up in the 80s. Um, but but it's, it's not that either. Biblically speaking, heaven is really actually somewhat of a simple idea. You can read about it for yourself specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically in Revelation 21 and 22. It is where God is. And that's what makes it so worthwhile. There are no more tears, there is no more death, there is no more fear or pain, and we are at the throne of God. And so when we talk about having a citizenship that is in heaven, when we talk about an inheritance, an understanding of having all of the, the ability and the receiving of all that is God's, that might not be very attractive to you. And therefore, having a biblical understanding and being drawn to this great news, heaven is not the consolation prize. Live as much as you can, get as much as you can here, and oh yeah, by the way, then you go to heaven. Those who have walked before us, no matter how hard life got, that's where their head was always at. It may be hard today, but heaven awaits. That's what Peter's readers were going through in the first century, and that's what he wants to communicate to us. Our citizenship is in this place that is with God. And he talks about this inheritance that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. Think of that in greater to lesser terms. I enjoy a banana every now and then. Okay, any banana people out there? A few of us, you can raise your hand at all of our different locations. Yeah, I enjoy a banana. I like them actually a little bit on the green side, right, just a little bit, right? So if you take an ideal picture-perfect banana and you recognize, give that thing two months, that's called perish, okay? It is an ugly mess, turning all kinds of colors, okay? That is horrific to consider, it is dead. If you take that, um, stereotypical, just kind of banana that I like in my mind, but yet you actually give it, instead of that duration, give it about 10 days, it starts to get brown spots all over it, really mushy, and for some of you you dig that, I just think it's baby food and I don't want anything to do with it. So it's kind of gross. Yeah, you can turn it into good things like banana bread, but outside of that, you don't wanna eat that thing. That, that's when it is spoiling. Never perish, never spoil. And even that banana that I like in that mode, if you give it two or three days too long, it begins in my mind to fade. The taste just isn't as good as it would have been a couple days before. Peter wants you to understand your inheritance won't experience any of those things. It will not perish, it will not spoil, it will not fade. As great as heaven is, the moment you arrive is as great as it will be through all eternity. That is powerful and he wants his readers, you and me and them 2,000 years ago, to recognize this great thing. Peter says all these things that we've read in these few verses talk so much of what God is doing. By his mercy, he's birthing you into this living hope, that he is giving you this inheritance in heaven, that he is shielding you. And what is the one thing you contribute into that sequence is simply having faith. Having faith, not faith in faith, faith in this living hope, and believing that God is good for every word he said. And these verses that we've just read are so thick with this concept of a citizenship that is in heaven, and that we live here as exiles in the meantime. Over the course of this series, I'm gonna have a few book recommendations for you, and this is the first one I wanted to make. I'll be quoting it throughout the series. It's called Faithful Exiles that's put out by the Gospel Coalition. It's actually a sequence of essays, it's not just one author, but it literally kind of begins with topics like politics, money, vocation, missions, worship. It's just all these different topics and simply is asking the question by multiple writers who experience these things, what does it look like to live as an exile in that space? If that's of any interest to you, I, I read this over the Christmas break and found it so helpful and just a, a big encouragement to understand what it is that I am and how I'm living among a group of native people. So just to help it along the way. Lastly, notice that this faith that we've talked about that is ours to engage. Look what God is even doing though through it. He is shielding us. And that Greek word can be translated as to actively display whatever defense necessary to guard. Listen to that again. This is what God is doing for you, actively displaying whatever defensive and offensive means are necessary to guard. God's got you. What a great, powerful promise to be reminded of today. Let's continue on, number two in your notes. When your faith is in Jesus, the shadows prove the sunshine. When your faith is in Jesus, the shadows prove the sunshine. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Let's read these next couple of verses, verses six and seven. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I've been a Switchfoot fan for the last 20 plus years and you might've noticed that's where that point comes from is a title of one of their songs, The Shadows Prove the Sunshine. And the concept is simply this, when you and I are walking in seasons that feel like a complete valley of shadow, difficulty, drudgery, challenge, just exhaustion, fill in the blank, one of the things that's so easy is to become engulfed by the shadows and forget that the shadows themselves prove their sun on the other side of the clouds. The shadows prove the sunshine. And so the reality of what Peter's saying to his listeners in this first century and to us today is he's saying that even though this reality, everything I've told you is true of what God has promised you, where your citizenship is and how that will not perish, spoil, or fade. However, I know in this season you're going through it. I know that you are facing all kinds of grief. And they both go together. They're not mutually exclusive. And this one, this grief, these trials, they should remind you that there's sunshine on the other side of them. And God has not given up. God has not in any way been surprised by any of the things that you are facing. Sometimes we can think that, but when we keep coming back to the sovereignty of God, we believe there's not a single thing that enters into your life that didn't first go through his grid. So God is completely in control. Though He loves you greatly, and though He has this future for you, it doesn't mean He loves you less because you're going through trials. And He shared with us, even in what we just read, there's purpose in our pain. This is the way Peter describes it. Listen to the way that Paul describes this concept to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving, they're gaining for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal so what peter and paul are helping their readers understand is god is purposeful in the pain they experience it's not random it's not purposeless and he's actually doing things to build them to grow them and to prepare them for their future so the minute that we experience trials and difficulties we ought not go to the fact that god has somehow abandoned us We ought not go to the place that somehow God has failed us or he's taking a nap. We instead should go, God, in the same way you've promised me this and this is my motivation, this reality of heaven that I am looking forward to, there is a world, a fallen, broken world, a world that even where Jesus' followers face persecution that I need to remember not just that these are true, but even in this season, you're up to something good, even in the pain. When we talk about this idea of faith, and we talk about the reality of not just having it, but it being tested, it being proven genuine James writes to his readers and he says this in chapter one, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, and here's that same word, proven genuine, you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There's purpose in your pain. In your notes, faith is demonstrated to be genuine when it's tested. Faith is demonstrated to be genuine when it's tested. It seems like in some ways, so much of a kind of duh kind of statement, but let me just remind you of what we're trying to say. You can say you have faith in God, and yet as you live your life just completely devoid of a need for him most days, I take care of myself, I get, go to the grocery store, I put food on the table, I go to my job, I take my kids here or there, so independent of reliance upon God, and you can say you have a faith in God, but the reality is you're not calling on him for much of anything. But then the challenge comes, then the trial arrives. And by the way, all those times here, it's not as though you didn't need God, he was taking care of you, you just didn't know it. You weren't paying attention. But then all of a sudden, the walls start caving in and you realize, man, God, I need you, I need help. Up until that time, to say you had faith was a theoretical reality, but it wasn't necessarily having feet. It wasn't playing out in real life. Now it has to. Think of it this way. Here we are, the middle of January, 14 days into a new year. And many of us made resolutions of a thing that we said or things we said we were gonna do in this new year. Just to see all over all of our different um, spaces today, how many of you are still going strong with what you resolved to do earlier this year? Great, good. I'm not gonna ask the other question, right? It's kinda, yeah, it's already the 14th. But either way, either way, that's a great example. When you make a resolution, you're theoretically committing to something. Before January 1st, I want to do X, I wanna be committed to Y in the new year. But when January 1 rolls around, that's the stuff, that's the proving the truth of the resolution is when it actually now is time to engage. It can be the same thing with faith. It's a great theoretical idea, but when there's actually a time to engage and to need, to rely upon God, do you or not? For me, just so you know some accountability, if you were here at our Christmas Eve services, one of our actionable steps was to do the shred, to read our entire Bible in 30 days in the month of January and have one day to spare. And I just wanted you to know I'm at day 14 with 300 plus people from High Desert Church that are on the same reading plan and we've read almost halfway through the Bible already. That's really cool, but I'm telling you, it has changed my life, not just powerfully to get God's word like that, but I was up at five today doing that. And I would have loved another hour and a half of sleep, but that's the reality. It's putting feet to it rather than just theoretically having it in my head. Peter is saying your faith has to be proven genuine. And that's how it happens is through the challenges that we face. And what, remember the theme of Peter's book is he's not even saying these are just living on a fallen planet kind of challenges. These are the challenges they're facing uniquely because they follow Jesus. The front edge of persecution that's gonna become even more intense in just a few years because of Rome going crazy against Christians. So Peter's saying this is even a unique kind of testing that they're facing. And and you gotta know that's got to feel a unique sense of discouragement where it's like, God, I'm trying to live for you and look at what these people are doing to me. Peter's wanting to encourage them, don't think that God is failing you because you're being persecuted for your faith. Recognize he's proving the genuineness of it. One of the co-authors of the book I shared with you a minute ago also wrote a book called Evangelism as Exiles. And he has some great comments to talk about not just that hope of heaven, but that confidence in the meantime. He writes, but hope for the Christian isn't just confidence in a certain glorious future. It's hope in a present providence. It's hope that God's plans can't be thwarted by local authorities or irate mobs by unfriendly bosses or unbelieving husbands, by Supreme Court rulings or the next election. The Christian hope is that God's purposes are so unassailable that a great thunderstorm of events can't drive them off course. Look at this line. Even if we're wave-tossed and lost at sea, Jesus remains the captain of the ship and the commander of the storm. How good is that? We may be strangers and sojourners in uncomfortable and less than desirable conditions. We may have had our rights and privileges stripped away from us. We may have neither the community nor the personal comfort we want. We may have been forced into unpleasant situations or relationships we'd never choose, but look at this. But what if God's providential hand has put us right where we are with a specific purpose. And what is that? To bring about the salvation of his own. What if God was up to something this whole time, placing you in spaces that are difficult because he wants to use you as a source of Jesus' influence in the lives of people you interact with? This is perspective, this is getting our head around, rather than just the painful thing we see right in front of us. God, what is your fully or purpose for what you're doing? And being encouraged by that truth. The last phrase that Peter wrote in this passage, these two verses we read, is we said it said that this hope is gonna be realized, and when it does, there's gonna be praise, honor, and glory given to Jesus as a result. And I was thinking about that phrase and I was thinking about in contrast to our faith and continuing to keep that faith, believing that Jesus is good for everything he said he would do. And it made me think of movies that I've seen, books that I've read, read, and you can relate where there's a scene that someone is in a situation where they can't leave where they are, and it's it's a, a situation where there's peril and danger, And one other person leaves, and in order to do so is gonna come back and rescue them. And they've told them, don't worry, I'll be back for you. And they go, and there's a duration of time that this person has to believe, has to have faith, has to trust that this other one's gonna come back for them, usually with reinforcements, right, and save the day. In the stories that you've read or watched, and when that happens, you remember Do you remember the elation? Do you remember the sense of just fears that melt away when that person, that savior comes back? You came back for me. You didn't forget me, you didn't fail. And in that elation, do you also recognize who gets the credit, who's the hero? Not the person who waited, the person who came the person who returned, the person who brought salvation to their situation. You see, that's who Jesus is, and I wanted you to know, sometimes we go, God, I wish I could do things in my life that would bring you more praise, more glory, more honor. Can I tell you, when you entrust yourself to Jesus in the day in, day out stuff, When you entrust him, when you feel senses of being outcast because of your faith, when you trust him through the trials that you go through, guess what? On the day he returns, as you continue to trust him for those things, you're giving him glory, honor, and praise. That's something you can do. That's fruit of an obedient life that simply says, God, I'm believing, I haven't failed to to give up on you, that you aren't going to do everything you told me you'd do, every promise you've made to me. By having that kind of faith, it shines the light on him when he makes good on his promises. And that's a powerful thing that Peter wanted us to know today, there is a way that we can demonstrate that, that we get to put that focus on God's goodness. Finally today, number three, when your faith is in Jesus, the result is both now and not yet. When your faith is in Jesus, the result is both now and not yet. Last two verses today, verses eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I had told you last week that the tone of 1 Peter, as we continue through the book, is very pastoral and very encouraging. Peter wants his readers to have this sense of a shot in the arm of courage that you can keep going on, it's gonna be worth it. And you're gonna sense that same kind of encouragement as we read this through. And I think these last two verses are so powerful knowing who they come from. You see, when Peter was writing to these dispersed Christians in what is now today modern Turkey, he recognized that not a single one of them had ever seen Jesus with their eyes. He recognized that not a single one of them had ever seen Jesus do miracles, had ever heard from their own ears his teaching, But guess what, Peter had. Peter had walked with Jesus, had the privilege of being one of the 12 for over three years. And he had all these personal examples and accounts of the real living Jesus who really died and really was risen again. And watch this, Peter needed zero faith for any of that because he was face to face with him. But Peter admires, His readers in the first century, he admires his readers 2,000 years later who though they've never seen Jesus with their eyes, never heard him audibly with their ears, you still believe him, you still love him and I want you to see this in your notes, see what Peter was just kind of drawn to. Peter needed faith to believe that Jesus was going to return, but you need faith to believe that Jesus even exists. Peter needed zero faith for that. And his understanding, if, when Jesus comes again, that's what I'm trusting him for. He told me he'd return. I have to put faith in Jesus for that. You have got to put faith in Jesus for everything, every part of the story. And Peter commended them, and Peter commends you today through that same lens. He notes that what accompanies their faith is an inexpressible and glorious joy. A joy you can't even put into words. It's just this this sense within you that just is steadying and continues to remind you, man, God, even in the journey, you're good. Many of you were with us a couple falls ago when we did a study in uh, Philippians and we just called it joy because literally the word joy came up in the text every single message we gave in that short four chapter book. And so what we realized in that study is we realized it's a, not, a non-biblical notion to say, such and such has stolen my joy. I admitted to you then, I admit to you now, I've said that phrase before like many of you have. This person or these circumstances is stealing my joy. And what we realize though is our joy is deeply anchored in the person of Christ. That's the the total, that's the concept within the book of Philippians. That's why Paul could write about joy from a jail cell because joy wasn't dependent on circumstances. But watch this, not only is our joy rooted in the person of Jesus, so is our hope our living hope, our living joy. And Jesus is the source of those things as we remain connected to him. Peter finishes this thought by saying that there is this this sense of them experiencing, receiving now the result of their faith the salvation of their souls. That's kind of a, an odd thing. Sometimes you've had a conversation with someone and they've used a, a unique word or even a phrase of a verb that just caught you funny. Like, why did you say it that way or what did you mean? And sometimes when you, if you do ask, they go, oh, I just, it just came to my mind I just said it. Or other times it's like, oh no, I was being very specific. I wanted to say it that way. Peter is the latter. He wants to say it this way, you are now present middle verb you are now receiving the end game the result of your salvation the salvation of your souls you are getting glimpses of what it is to be saved and right with god now and when peter's writing that i think he's just taking what he heard jesus say in john ten ten. i have come to give you life and life to the full he didn't say i've come to give you life someday and someday to the full, Jesus said eternity begins now. We don't live only for something in the future, we live for what's happening in the present, knowing the promises that God has made to us will be fulfilled in the future. You are now receiving the salvation of your souls. Jesus has come to give you life, now and to the full, eternity begins today. So let me ask you some questions in closing to keep getting our heads and our hearts around this idea of what does it look like to live as an exile? Is eternity beginning now in your life today because you're conscious of where your home in heaven really is? Is eternity beginning now in your life because you recognize that you are in exile here and you're learning how to live among the residents? Is eternity beginning now in your life because you recognize that God has called you to this role of being an ambassador, being his representative to people that are not any longer of you, but people you're called to love and come alongside of, the people in your relational world, the people in your oikos and his eternity beginning now because you're walking this fine line of being in the world, but not of the world, and trusting that God has something for you so worth it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today so grateful for these truths, these words of encouragement, these words of exhortation from the apostle Peter who is reminding us of this incredible news of our home in heaven, but is also reminding us that we are going to face challenges and difficulties, and you're using those to prove the genuineness of our faith. Father, remind us that it's all part of the picture. It all comes together. It's all part of the deal of following Jesus and it is absolutely worth it. You may be here today, any of our campuses, watching online, and you would say, Todd, I've actually never responded to the invitation in the gospel to be right with God. I've never admitted that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I've never believed that Jesus is the only savior available. I've never chosen to bring my life and and to put it at his feet and simply say, Jesus, I wanna follow you the rest of my life. I've never done that. And I want you to know today, there are no classes to attend, no hoops to go through. It begins with a simple prayer, recognizing those three things. And I pray you wouldn't let another moment go by until you do. Father, this week, help us live out the elect exiles lives you've called us to with an inexpressible joy. We love you and pray in Jesus' great name, amen.